0: So I have ADHD and I like, knew that since I was in high school, but I, I didn't realize until the pandemic how much that was actually affecting my my work because it was at the office with everybody else pretending like everybody else. We're supposed to just come in and be like, hey, how are you? Fine. And then uh, suddenly being at home, I was like what, do I, like, what do I do? Problems I didn't realize were sort of masked by going to the office. And it's like I've never even, like, paid attention to that because at the office, I didn't have to see it. If you have a limited ability to be able to solve problems or even see someone's trying to solve those problems, that's gonna lead to you to burnout. There's gotta be better education on it. And I think getting honest about it because it is difficult to be honest about. It's mm-hmm. one of those things where you don't wanna raise the red flag and then put the spotlight on yourself. But at the same time, it's so rampant that I feel like we just need to understand it better. For leadership too, like how do you help people when you're struggling. The more leaders themselves care about learning and kind of share what they're learning, Mm -hmm. I think that's probably the best way to do it.
1: Sam? Thanks for joining me.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: It's a pleasure to have you here in the studio at StartWell. Likewise. And I'm really, really excited to talk about uh, a bunch of stuff that we already started talking about before Mm -hmm. we pressed record. I
0: think a Um, bunch of stuff is a good summary.
1: A bunch of stuff. (laughs) A bunch of stuff. We were talking about leadership. We were talking a little bit about this like remote work, distributed team culture question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So,
0: And I think the unmasking... That's sort of collectively happened since 2020. Mm-hmm. I think that would be a good probably bucket to start digging into.
1: Okay, let's so, go there. That's a good way to
0: yeah, to summarize it. Well, okay, so as I'm a recruiter, yeah, as you know, but that's not how I identify. Okay. Like I'm a human who that happens to be my deal at the moment, but I, it's not really how I sort of see myself. Yeah. What I mean is I feel like when people find out that I'm a recruiter, they'll ask me questions that aren't. Necessarily, my primary concern, like mm-hmm. about the about the market and about like very kind of business-oriented questions, but I'm interested more in the people side. Mm-hmm. So what I've observed since 2020 that's kind of like fascinated me since then was the fact that as soon as we moved home, it's like we all lost that ability to compartmentalize. Mm. So in terms we, of
1: work-life balance, yeah, yes, okay. like
0: problems that people were ignoring for sometimes decades, now they're in the same space with those problems. Oh, so yes. if that's like spousal issues, like trouble with the organizing the home, like all kinds of stuff that maybe, you know, they've never looked at mm. are suddenly front and center. So suddenly like the landscape of my work changed a lot because, you know, recruiting by nature you're you're working with so many different types of people. You're with hiring managers and like directors and candidates and but none of those people often were kind of like prepared to suddenly be at home sitting with themselves. And there was this shift almost right away where I noticed, you know, when I was in a meeting with like a hiring manager, we're not just talking about like the candidates anymore. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, oh, my kids in the background, oh, there's this, like, it's just so much, it was so much harder for them to kind of hide what was going on. And so I started learning more about people. And it was kind of like, we don't know how to do this. Yeah. Like, we don't know how to be people at work. We know how to be people who work. Right. But that's totally different than like bringing your whole self. And then that's starting on this whole path which I'm sure will will start to kind of like unravel in this conversation. Yeah, and, like of that course. was the foundation before. It where I was like, oh, this is all new to us and we're flailing, but we're not telling anybody that we're flailing." I think now we're getting to that point, but I think it's also taken a long time for people to kind of be okay admitting that they're struggling.
1: Mhm. Well, because isn't that the case that like corporate culture, no matter what your corporation is, as long as you're more than, well, it's not even about headcount from what I've seen. But um, there's this assumption in corporate reality in North America, especially here in Canada, that work and life are balanced between nine to five. There's this kind of like you live your life when you can live your life, but you're not living your life when you're at work. Yeah. So I think. There's one, you know, the, to paint the context of the of the pre-pandemic work kind of scenario that maybe you're alluding to is that I think when people were hanging out in the office, you know, they had their office self and their office identity, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is a little messed up, you know, because we we hope to be ourselves. That's the ultimate goal in life, right? To just be at peace with yourself, yeah, and then yeah. exist happily in the world,
0: yeah,
1: and have nothing <laughs> trouble you. So I think, yeah, to to be at home, I think also, yeah, there were a lot of frustrations that people didn't necessarily know how to channel or voice to do with having us a, a kind of a lack of connection, sense of opportunity, you know, ability to even trust. And I think I know this sounds a little weird, but uh, maybe even trust their employment.
0: I don't think that sounds weird at all. OK. Yeah. I think that that makes a lot of sense where I think... We didn't have space, I feel like, before 2020. And by we, I mean, like, the kind of tech collective, I guess, of, like, corporate, you know, tech. There was no space to even kind of consider that. Mm -hmm. Like, how much safety sort of factors into your, like, your ability to do your job. Like, and to to function as as a human, right? So, for myself, like, I... Um, so I have ADHD and I like knew that since I was in high school, but I, I didn't realize until the pandemic how mm-hmm. much that was actually affecting my
1: my work, too. Because, That's interesting. So for yeah. quite a number of years, you didn't expect it to be a hindrance to how you could focus yeah. when you needed to.
0: Yeah, because it was at the office with everybody else pretending like everybody else. And it's it really did feel that way where it's sort of like, OK, I'm, you know, playing my Work role and but I didn't have the space to sort of look at my life as a whole. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly being at home when that context changed where it's like I don't have my routine of like hamster wheel of like being at my desk and my it's like I was like what do I like what do I do like my day is completely changed and it's like problems I didn't realize were sort of masked by going to the office. I'm like, I don't know how to manage my whole life as one thing. Mm. like, I've got, you know, things that were, I'm now sitting in a home that I actually don't really know how to manage because I don't have routines for it. And it's like, I've never even like paid attention to that because at the office, I didn't have to see it.
1: What's an example of a routine that you didn't manage
0: um, beforehand? Like, okay. So I have a tendency to, when I fall off, I fall off hard. So if, you know, as in like lose focus, like it's, you know, there's a misconception with ADHD that it's the inability to focus. It's more like it's difficult to manage multiple things at once. Mm. It's difficult to focus on things that aren't engaging at once. Okay. so for me that and it's, you know, it's different for everybody for how it manifests for me is like if it's hard to be giving a lot of my energy to work at Mm. the same time as home management, at the same time as hobbies, at the same time as socializing. And prior to the pandemic, I would just say yes to things. So I'd, you know, go out and see people. I'd kind of not clean up for a little bit and just, but I didn't have to see it because it Mm -hmm. wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it was like, all of the busyness stopped. And I was like, wait a minute, what, something feels better about this. And then it was looking at, you know, how, I had never looked consciously balanced my life before. Mm. And I don't think I'm alone in that where it's like, you know, I realized even, you know, having this conversation, like, isn't comfortable. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, I think that this is like the way forward. Like, I think we need to be more transparent and say like, right. you know, it's it's been a struggle.
1: And that comfort might, you know, might come with dialogue, right? With come with like being able to socialize our personas and socialize who we are, Within jobs, outside of jobs, and also there's something yeah. interesting here I think, which is to do uh, with the choice that employees make to join companies. You know, funnily enough, in, in in so far in this series, in in the gathering podcast series, we haven't really talked about um, the idea, especially with talent management, talent uh, talent attraction people, HR people, recruiters, that. Uh, Yes, okay, so it's great. A company wants to employ you, right? But then also the contract is a two-way street. Like you want to join this team. You have Mm -hmm. your own expectations, assumptions about how working with that company will be, feel, benefit you in various ways. Um, And for the better part of it, whether it means, as in the new reality, people stay for a year or Mm -hmm. they build a career with that company and they're there for longer – the commitment to spend that time and to want to contribute and to get, you know, uh, positive vibes back,
0: yeah, feel yeah. like they're
1: able to contribute and all that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know that that's an interesting thing. It's normally considered like, okay, I got a job. I'm thankful for that job. Yeah. And like everything relies on. I give my destiny to the company.
0: To- that you should be lucky just to have that as opposed and
1: then, as opposed to yeah. think of it as a partnership. Yes. A
0: yeah. Yeah, um,
1: And so that's kind of interesting because I feel there might be subconscious bias that people have where, which they carried from this context into the pandemic and a little bit of feeling let down by the isolation as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Because it was difficult, I know, in 2020 for a lot of people to, um, you know, employees and, you know, no, no matter what their job role was that we've talked to, to socialize their, um, whatever they were going through apart from everybody, even though everybody was seeing them on their couch in their living room
0: yeah, all the time. Right. And, and not doing well sometimes. And it's like, what do we do with that? We've never... We've never encountered that before. Yeah. It's like we're supposed to just come in and be like, hey, how are you? Fine. And how, you was your, fine how was your weekend? <laughs> yeah. 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 It's like that rote. And all of a sudden it's like our scripts are gone. Mm-hmm. And they think like that's kind of part of the unmasking. But for leadership, too, like it was a big, I think, you know, how do you how do you help people when you're struggling? Mm -hmm. And I think that's been a big thing that I've noticed, too, for people teams where, um, you know, there's just been burnout has been so rampant. And Mm -hmm. when it's ignored, it's like it's not going away. It's like it's, it's kind of an endemic. And it's like, you know, if we don't know how to deal with that, but don't admit that we don't know how to deal with it, we're just kind of exacerbating the problem like Mm -hmm. so i've seen you know i've worked with a lot of people like through the since 2020 that it's and the thing is like i don't know if i noticed burnout before i don't know if it's new and it's just worse or i just wasn't aware of what it looked like but for sure since 2020 i've worked with countless people that are just it's it's an it's an apathy it's like a you, mm-hmm. just, you just cease Great caring word. because you've been under so much stress that you haven't dealt with that it's like no, you no longer want to work with people and you no longer want to talk to anybody. And so it's kind of like, oh, look at this person there. They don't care about their work. They're disengaged. And it's like...
1: It's not their yeah, lack it, of interest in the company's interests totally. and lack of alignment. It's... Yeah. They're yeah. under stress and they don't know how to manage it. Exactly. It's an interesting thing because like how does a company take on, if, I guess... This is a question for you. What have you discovered, if anything, um, that lie in the abilities of an organization to uh, be more proactive if possible uh, or otherwise be more just cognizant of the possibility of this this kind of burnout uh, and being able to mitigate it? Because it's mm-hmm. it's a mixture now of so many factors that cause and contribute this burnout. It's yeah the lifestyle factor, but being impeded, perhaps— by uh, responsibilities of workplace thrust into the home
0: yeah, yeah if
1: it's remote work burnout mm-hmm. uh, so I think there is a responsibility for organizations there to kind of keep an eye on things and then you know what's within their template to be able to manage this? do you yeah, think yeah
0: that's a really good question. I think like that's something that i I think a lot about and have sort of more, I would say f- more follow-up questions than definitive answers for but Like one of the things I think what not to do is I think if burnout's handled as a performance issue, Mm -hmm. then we're missing a huge part of it Yeah, because that's, it's going to compound it. It Like it shows a fundamental misunderstanding of what burnout actually is, which Mm -hmm. is often I think there's been a, a misconception with that too, where it's like overwork leads to burnout, which it does. But that's, I think this is a different type where it's like, it generally kind of, shows up post pandemic as like seeing issues that you don't see resolution for. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't even mean that issues have to be like, and they could be systemic. They could be whatever, like we're especially with, with very process oriented kind of jobs. It's like, if you're, if you have a limited ability to be able to solve problems or even see someone's trying to solve those problems, that's going to lead to you to burn out. Right. Right. And it's because it's an exhaustion. And it's like, if we're, putting people on performance plans or looking at that as like not caring about the business and this and that. If we handle it from a business perspective, Mm -hmm. we're we're losing. And I feel like, especially when, you know, we talk a lot about recruiting, um, you know, diverse people and that already, I feel like if you're, you know, part of a diverse population that could be, you know, gay or neurodivergent or like racialized, anything that's, you know, not necessarily like the majority that, well you know, um, then you're coming at a higher risk of burnout. But I've never heard of anybody talk about that. So it's sort of like we're attracting without w- what do we do to support burnout? Like,
1: so I think there's two issues there. There's this like diversity hire question, whether it's like a corporate social responsibility mandate, in, you know, under the rug, yeah. like right. uh, covert op, you know. Or, uh, and which, then, like,
0: hopefully is coupled with caring. But it's yeah, like, you, yeah, exactly. You know, do you know what I
1: mean? Uh, but I think, you know, so that's one issue. That's maybe how it kind of evolves or is manifest. But I, I feel like there's this underlying thing that we keep talking about with guests on this series, which is culture. And the question of how companies celebrate, well, first design uh, or otherwise see in their people a culture emerge uh, and then celebrate it to the point of being able to uphold it and nourish it Mm -hmm. and if diversity is one of their cultural values uh, diversity needs to be seen as something ubiquitous and then they have the ability an organization should have the ability to to kind of you know welcome and celebrate all people
0: um that's it it's and it's doing that makes it it supports everybody. Yeah. That's the thing. So it's like, okay, if there's a higher burnout risk and, you know, just if you're a member of a diverse population, it's like that, that – those aren't the only people who burn out. Like, everybody burns out. But mm. it's like if we're thinking about it in that context, then it just makes sense because I, I don't know. I feel like, you know, is there a way we could identify people, for example, for burnout risk as they're joining? Mm-hmm. And could we – That's an know, interesting Give one. them tools to – Right, because it, it happens a lot, especially with like the Great Resignation, where right. so many people were were switching. You know, in the last two years, it's like this creates a, a weird culture where, there's not a lot of people with a ton of experience in their roles of the, of the company. So it's it's
1: yeah, like new hires have replaced people that may have had longer standing tenures. We talked with someone recently um, about this this question. I think it was uh, Reza from Wave, a uh, financial company. But we were talking about this idea of knowledge basing, you know, for, for a, a company. So, absolutely, this is a big question. Like a lot of companies, even today, they haven't learned necessarily through the churn that they've witnessed in the last couple of years. But as you lose people, you're losing knowledge. And, like, mm-hmm. one side of that is you want to own and, and, and database your knowledge. But the other thing is that training people for a job doesn't necessarily mean handing them a handbook. Yeah. So yeah, there's mm-hmm. this question, and it's an open-ended question. I don't know. It's the question you raised of, like, how do we kind of assess burnout pre-hire? Mm-hmm. But then there's a weird thing of (laughs) you don't want to bias your hiring decision by saying, "Oh, Jim's burnt out. Sorry, Jim."
0: Totally, unless you can help Jim, right? That's exactly. You don't want to
1: wreck. Exactly. Yeah, you don't want to look for it unless it's it's something within your um, abilities to to help solve.
0: Yeah, I think it comes down to education too, because it's sort of, you know, if I've I've heard advice before, like given, and just. Okay, report it to your manager. And you're kind of like, but my manager is more burned out than I am and possibly doesn't know it. So it's kind of like there, there's there got to be like a top – there's got to be just a better education on it. And I think getting honest about it – because it is difficult to be honest about. It's mm-hmm. one of those things where, you know, you don't want to get – you don't want to raise the red flag and then put the, the sort of like, you know, the spotlight on yourself. But at the same time, it's so rampant that – I feel like we just need to understand it better so that we can actually deal with it. Because it's like, what if, okay, what if there weren't a performance plan, but like a support plan Mm -hmm. where it's like, okay, you know, we're going to do check-ins. We're going to, because there's a lot of, I feel like a lot of companies have external resources where it's sort of like, okay, here's, um, like the employee assistance programs where you can talk to a counselor, which is great. But it's kind of like, if you're already burned out, it's difficult to then add another thing to manage and to like proactively do where it's kind of like, couldn't we set up the space to to build that into our into onboarding or whatever so it's not necessarily assessing people for burnout before they join but like j- immediately post hire
1: what do you think about how companies can assess the fit of their employees with their roles and their expectations in figuring this burnout thing
0: like if like if there's maybe a mismatch between what they're doing and what they would maybe prefer to do kind of internal mobility type of stuff. Yeah. 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 I think it's, that's a tough one because it's case by case, but I think like the better, the better opportunity there is for internal mobility. Yeah. That can definitely help where that's a tough one too, though, because you know, sometimes people are coming out of a role. Mm -hmm. I've had this experience. So in one of my first, um, like one of my formative like work experiences in the games industry i was in like a, a user research context and i was i was on a very small team um, my kind of counterpart was very analytical and i was doing more of the social side so basically we needed like a, a we needed to grow a database of mm-hmm. people who could test games and um, i took that the social side of that and he was working on the analyst part of that and we were doing great like we were we were excelling in our roles, but our manager, bless him, we're, I'm still friends with him, so this is fine at the time wanted us to build the opposite skill sets. Oh so he goes, okay great, but you know you you're gonna bump up your social skills, you're gonna bump up your analyst skills like, and so we're I both don't both have unhappy. that side
1: of my brain <laughs>
0: yeah, <I'm> like, <laughs> well so I left to, to recruit and and it was only later because again we're buddies that he said, you know I, I, I understand now. How that wasn't the, but I was, it was like my, my ability to move internally felt like it was, you know, being judged on my inability to perform this job that I didn't actually want. And Mm -hmm. so it's kind of, I think that if we're, if we're coming at this from a more open-minded, like again, holistic, like human centric, because a lot of, I think internal mobility programs are like built on the, on the premise that if you're excelling in your current role, You'll mm. excel in whatever role. So if you're yeah, struggling, in your role. Yeah, treats and bonuses.
1: Role, you know. Yeah, it's, it's like, like what if the what if the
0: role's not a fit, and that's food person... where I
1: told you to. And <laughs>
0: totally. <laughs>
1: here's your treat.
0: Yeah, but like, what if it isn't a match? I like that you brought that up because that's a. I think that's a. Yeah, important I mean, one.
1: I what I hope for. Uh, we see it in startups. Where there's a lot of burnout early on because technology companies, technology startups, because the functional expectations of each additional, you know, human resource, each person that joins a team are so gargantuan, Uh, depending on, you know, let's call it fundraise cycles and so on. If you're perhaps more bootstrapped or or whatever, uh, you know. Maybe anyway, I'm I'm generalizing, so I might as well generalize. I'm not going to backtrack it. People get stressed out quick uh, mm-hmm. because they have to perform, and and they're doing new things every day. So performing at new is, is its own skill set, and it's very difficult. And mm-hmm. the ways of uh, entrepreneurialism are kind of assumed upon you know early employees in a lot of startups, uh, where they might not have. Um, bought into that. They might not have yeah. thought that this company is a startup versus something more established and, and I'll be responsible for things that I, I are not within my wheelhouse. You know, mm-hmm. But we see that a lot because of this. Um, and a lot of early tech company churn, um, irrespective of generational background, you know, how old people are. It, it's something that's always been there in tech,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. especially
1: tech startups. Um, this idea that like, yeah, that it, it becomes difficult to contribute full on hundred percent every day mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. not, and, and, and when you see yourself being applicable, um, for certain skills or certain, uh, things that you can contribute to the team, uh, having those validated against the people around you because the expectations of you fitting that role, cause you're representing five people that should be hired, but haven't been are that much higher. So it's like, oh, yeah. okay, cool. You want to do that stuff? Do it outside of, you know, do it on the weekend. Yeah. That'll yeah. be your project. And it's like, no, man, <laughs> yeah. I'm already doing too much. Yeah. So I think there's that kind of context as well in smaller firms and, and early stage firms.
0: I think especially when there's that pressure to perform, right? Because it's like when you're working on like a product or a service or whatever that you're trying to prove its value, it's like that, you know, you've, you've got that sort of like, you know, pressure to look like you're maybe... I'm spitballing, by the way. I've never started a startup, but I feel like there would be pressure to sort of, you know, prove the the worth of, of... you know, the viability of it. So well, okay, there's a dissonance because, so, you, yeah. you know, you don't want to necessarily admit if you're stressed or...
1: No, and it's true. And and look, the, that's a startup thing. There's there's a lot of pitfalls of kind of startups and tech startups. And a lot of them on funding track um, do fall into this. You're right to spitball in that direction because <laughs> what happens is, and I, and I was just talking to a financier yesterday about this, but it's interesting that for a lot of early stage companies that raise capital, that becomes almost like the number one goal for the founding team.
0: Is raising the capital. Keep raising, keep raising, keep raising. And that, Mm -hmm. I mean,
1: that's almost a full-time job.
0: Mm. So
1: they're typically those funders that are preoccupied with fund raises uh, and who are not taking a bootstrapped approach or are not thinking about business fundamentals from day one, revenue, relationships with customers. They're not thinking about relationships in general. Um, And normally they don't put people in place to replace themselves right in the beginning Mm -hmm. for supporting, you know, the teams as leaders. So there's always kind of a corrosive culture emerging in a lot of (laughs) early stage tech until they get the validation of a certain, you know, client win or or funding round. And then they can bump up their staff count. And then who's orchestrating all of this? There's always problems. But uh, so, okay. It gives Uh, me anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) My background's tech. And you know it's uh, it's it's been good and bad to see all this stuff. But your background seems to be gaming. Tell me about that. Like how did how did gaming and video games come into your life? Where did that start?
0: You know, it's funny. Like I, well, they came into my life early. I love video games. So like from a consumer standpoint, forever. And um, it's funny because I started my career as a teacher. And my plan, like, I always had two things in my head, like either teacher or. Some type of communications within business. Yeah. So I started as a teacher, and uh, the thing I care about, though, is like is humans and helping them realize potential. What I was doing was teaching them core French. It's like, not, there's like a dissonance there. It was like, not uh, exactly.
1: Realize the future <laughs> yeah. that lies
0: Honestly, Laval. I was not cut out for it. The, I had students ask me, like, madame, you know, why are we using French? Like, I'm not going to use this. And I was kind of like, honestly, true. Like, knowing you, probably you won't. And it just spiraled. And I was kind of like, what am I doing? I want to help them learn how to, like, live. But... So I I try, I, t- I would talk to them on a more personal level a lot and and like I loved the kids that I taught just there's so much about the educational system that just doesn't like resonate with me sure um and yeah but so we would end up talking about games a lot and I was kind of like you know what why don't I why don't I follow that mm. so I went to communications and then and then. Uh, worked at Ubisoft first, which I loved. Like it was in Montreal. No, in Toronto. Okay. Yeah, when back when it was like now they're uh, I want to say they're almost like a thousand people. It was like two hundred when I joined, nice. something like that. So it was a nice size, like you could know everybody and um, really like get to know you know everyone. Wait, so really, this is when pa-
1: really paint a, a picture of the the years, like when oh when this were you was at in um,
0: 2013. Okay. Yeah, 2013.
1: Because I remember, wow. Has it been a decade before that? Because Ubisoft's been around. They've been yeah. around for, for, since the 90s, right? Mm, I think so. But like super micro team. And then as far as I remember, because I remember in Montreal, we didn't really think we... Li- when I lived in the plateau oh, around... Yeah, that's
0: right, of course. Yeah, 98 yeah. to
1: 2003. Uh, you know, lived, played, worked, loved and lost <laughs> in the plateau. Uh yeah, we didn't really think of Myland much, you know, which was that the the north north Laurent. We didn't think of that so much uh, because it was kind of a, a dead wasteland at the time. There weren't many places to go.
0: Wait, sorry, is that where Ubisoft Montreal is? Yeah. I, okay. Uh,
1: I don't know if they're still up there, but like, there's this. I we just remember that there was one company up there that everyone kind of knew, and it was this video game company, and and then they developed redeveloped their campus and in the process I think that was the major real estate development in that area.
0: Oh, okay, was that like makes a lot when of they sense. They built
1: out. And I think that might have been when I came back to Montreal, like 2004 or 5 or something. They they okay. they built out a big uh, beautiful like exposed brick kind of campus. And it was it was interesting because it was kind of like this in the area, it was almost like um a very distinct iconic uh moment for the evolution of the economy in the region because it was like a rebirth. You know, this is a working class kind of neighborhood uh for generations now, maybe since the eighteen hundreds, early eighteen hundreds, late seventeen hundreds, and it's being rebirthed with video games and
0: what a legacy. It's like you know. Yeah.
1: And at the time Montreal was really <laughs> cool. Awesome. There was so much tech happening in Montreal at the time. Yeah. There was like uh, mm-hmm. cri- oh, yeah, it's funny to say now with the failure of like FTX and all the Bitcoin stuff going on but like or blockchain stuff and it was all the same whatever all the crypto stuff
0: but <laughs> like, like they- escapes and scares me
1: <laughs> there was a crypto company not currency but cryptographers uh, that were f- kind of working on all these like uh, data security issues that, uh, that that opened up in Montreal around the time anyway so lots going on in Montreal all the time <laughs> But I digress because that was before your time at Ubisoft.
0: (laughs) And I'm laughing because it just sounds so futuristic. Like everything you just said.
1: All those words, right? It's
0: 2022 and like, what are we doing? Yeah. Crazy. This is the future. Yeah. But I just feel like, I feel like on balance, the internet has been an incredible thing. On balance. 100%. Yes. Okay,
1: good. All right. I love the internet. Yeah. Uh, I love the Internet dearly. I was one of the first, you know, kind of Internet pioneers in, in East Africa when I was a teenager. Oh, yeah. So yes. I used to you teach. You special love for the Internet. Oh, absolutely. Like I was a young teenager teaching people what the Internet was. I wrote my computing like thesis for my IGCSEs, my British system grade 10. Uh, and, and that was exactly the title of the thesis, The Internet. What it is and how it will transform humanity, and that was, uh, you know, and at the time I think I was fourteen. Was that right? That's awesome. Yeah, it was around that time, and I had to, like logged on twice, and then very quickly after I wrote that because I'd studied the internet in computer shopper magazines. Oh
0: my gosh! And
1: then I, um, and then I got online, <laughs> awesome. and I helped all the uh, early burgeoning uh, ISPs in Kenya. Uh, get customers. I was out there with a bag of modems as a teenager after school, like teaching people how to connect to the internet and and how to use IRC and FTP and uh, the web and why it's not the only thing. And then it became the only thing. And then the apps. you were
0: how old? You were 14? Mm. 14, 15. Yeah. That's awesome.
1: That's when I started.
0: Yeah. Man, I think like. I'm trying to think of what year I put a magazine in the VCR to see if it would play on the TV. But it wasn't 14. It wasn't 14. It was before that. Yeah. My point is that's that's like that's a long time ago. prodigious. Yeah. <laughs> that's like child prodigy level.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, like, I feel like back then people were geeks. The geeks I knew were like really, into you know, computers. Like being in a computers back then. And, and and maybe this will bring us back to video games and video game culture a little bit too. Oh is, yeah,
0: sorry, I totally dropped. Off no, that. it's I all good. Go, well, what I, I yeah didn't sell it well. I gotta finish <laughs> that it's in a bit. But <laughs> the
1: like back then, I mean, you you you, the computers were the new thing for us kids. Like. You could always aspire to all these great things of cars and houses or whatever Mm -hmm. It seemed cool. This was a time Mm -hmm. when there was a show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with a guy named Robin Leach. And he would, you know, once a week show us the lives of these Malibu millionaires and we'd think, wow. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't within our reach. What was within our reach was knowledge. Mm
0: -hmm. And Mm -hmm.
1: so all the smart kids in school were really into computers. And and it wasn't like, for me, at least in Kenya – it wasn't something that was at odds with jocks. There was no like, you know, jock right. versus nerd war. But um, but computers also were very special to us. And this is where I know Ubisoft from was they were very special to us because they enabled us to think, learn, eventually then communicate with the Internet with other people through the Internet um, and, and create.
0: I was, j- I, I was going to say create. I'm so happy you mm-hmm. said that. Yeah. Like the web pages, everything, building computers. Sorry, go ahead. Even before that,
1: like I am still amazed at age 42 in 2002 to print a page that was on my screen and take that information with me in my hand wherever I want and show it to people. Yeah, I'm still mm-hmm. amazed by that. Mm-hmm. But people take it for granted. People don't even have printers. They're like, "Why do That's I need a printer?" So
0: funny. Yeah, I have a, pr- I have a printer, and I f- I still feel pretty good about it. Props. Oh, no, honestly, honestly, there yeah. We go. <laughs> my sister in law was just telling me about how she because they got a my my. Wife's family got a computer pretty early, so very nice for them. And uh, I had to wait a while, but that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. And she would bring in printed pictures, and her teacher would react like she was some kind of like wizard. Yeah. yeah. How did <laughs> like, you make that? Wow.
1: I uh, before the internet, we had a fax machine, and we used to communicate with our cousins back in Canada by sending them funny faxes that we would design by printing things and like kind of awesome. make yeah, making like collage Ransom messages. Notes. Exactly. That's exactly what it looked like. <laughs> Uh, And then the internet just changed everything. Um, But, yeah, somewhere in the mix there, one of the games that I discovered uh, when we got our first color computer, uh, it was a, I believe it was a 486SX made by Commodore, which is weird because it was a PC, but it was a game designed by Ubisoft. And it was this like sci-fi Thing with like aliens that looked like slugs, and it was a two D, not quite shoot 'em up. I don't even know what it was.
0: No, I can't. It's
1: a. It's I it's definitely know. one of their early games.
0: I, I wish I. I would love to know.
1: But so, video gaming for me was actually the first console I ever had. In a way, was a computer, right? Mm. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: And then it was like me too, actually. I begged my dad for a uh, for a Sega Game Gear when the when that came out. And the Game Gear, you know. Did he, did he? Oh, yeah. He bought it for me. And he was he was awesome about it. He totally bought it. <laughs> and I won up my cousin who had, you know, his Game Boy. I was like, I got color. <laughs> Sonic. So fast. So awesome. <laughs> and then I plugged it in when we moved to Kenya. And, and I didn't realize the difference between 110 and, and 220 or 240 volts. And it fried the whole Game Gear. Oh, no. But I revived it somehow. I got it fixed. And then I <laughs> traded it with someone for a Super Nintendo. That's awesome. <laughs> and then that was the first like real, real multiplayer console that I had. Yeah. And that uh, was a
0: really exciting one.
1: And then I, I stuck with that. I, I actually never got anything after a Super Nintendo, but.
0: In some ways you didn't have to. I mean, you know, like it's great. The thing is, though, like, those games were so punishing. And, like, now... So I play, this like, on the Switch, there's, like, the... They have the library of, like, Super Nintendo games. But you can rewind now. What? You can rewind. You can
1: redo your move?
0: If you die. Yeah. You just rewind it. Oh, no. Yeah.
1: So. That shouldn't happen.
0: I mean... I like it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I could see, like, my daughter... It's like when we watch something on Netflix, and she's going back and back and back to the same point, And I'm like... <laughs> Do you know how that used to kill our VHS tapes? And like, yeah,
0: be careful. We couldn't
1: do that back in the day. It's, it's pretty so cool. Funny. Yeah, it's pretty cool. But it is. Um, okay, so wait. Let's take it back to your career.
0: Oh yes, right. Ubisoft. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and then, and how long were you there for?
0: Uh, it feels like a long time because it was such a formative like time in my career. But I think it was like a year and a half, maybe two years. Felt like a long time, but it was honestly I, like I loved it, and I I still have friendships to this day from from that time it was a beautiful time but then and i've done a bunch of of things like hopping around because basically like the way that because i've performed different roles so like sometimes recruiting i've done like production i've done like different functions like usually within games because Mm -hmm. i'm interested in what you know what happens kind of behind the scenes so it's given me a good like perspective on how games are made which is like crazy and you know sometimes scary and you're like what because there's just it's there's so many there's so much that goes into it yeah. and there are so many people that have just this like level of of understanding of something extremely niche and then they all come together to make something it's wild times but um doing everything i've done it was giving me that you know a good perspective on it but It's I I basically just evaluate my next move on where I see a need. Mm -hmm. So it's and it's kind of like what what problems can I solve and like what what skills can I gain doing that. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of um, so I've been kind of all over the place. Um, Yeah, spent the longest at Rockstar before coming to Unity. But
1: what's Rockstar known for?
0: uh, Grand Theft Auto. Grand Theft Auto, right? Yeah, I was there when we were shipping Red Dead Two.
1: I don't, man. Um, honestly, wait, you stopped I swear. The Super Nintendo. I, yeah, I haven't learned this stuff. You know, <laughs> oh. I'm afraid of this stuff. I'm afraid of modern video games because they will eat my life. Like, it's all I would want to. do. That's
0: fair. I could, I could see that. Like, if we, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it is, yeah, it requires um, I like, I love games, but it's there's definitely like things that I'll stay away from for that reason. Um, but yeah, like I just in everything, I feel like this. In a lot of ways, I feel like the connectivity of the internet has also enabled this like demasking, where you know e- on LinkedIn, for example, like you see there's so much more authentic- authenticity that happens there than in the just, last couple of years. Yeah, than just like plugging. You know what I mean? Like the 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 performativity. The
1: yeah, like I think the narrative changed in the last year, and there were two things. Like, um, so the interface changed on the web of LinkedIn when Facebook changes interface in 2020. I don't know if you noticed that but like facebook updated they dropped a lot of customers at the time or or let's say the the user experience was less sticky and then with the old kind of river of news format that linkedin adopted from facebook and then their experiments now in the video a native video support and all that stuff native media handling in different formats suddenly with everyone at home looking for a replacement social network mm. I found LinkedIn kind of blew up in a way. Mm-hmm. Interaction is way up on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. There's no trends because mm-hmm. like everyone has so a weird true. schedule now. But yeah, people want to post representing their company, but not to represent their company. Which
0: yeah. And yeah. what do you think? Is
1: it an opportunity for companies to embrace?
0: I think it. I think it should be. Like I think it's I think we're remiss if we don't because I think this is partially it's 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 like a force shift from the pandemic. Again, like just being forced to acknowledge that we're whole people. But I think part of it's generational where, you know, again that whole I I the dual the, the kind of contract with a company where, you know, you're you're agreeing to a partnership really and I think that you know all of this kind of generational warfare of of you know Gen Zs and millennials whatever being lazy and it's it's just a, it to me shows the misunderstanding of the fact that so if you have okay for example sorry I'm all over the place but no, let, me, no, let, me, let me do go an example with it. yeah go with it yeah so if if you've got a leader that had to kind of bootstrap their way or like schmooze their way up to the top and like really kind of grind for promotions and all that kind of stuff and then you're seeing this generation come in that has expectations of being able to be their whole self at work and to have you know psychological safety and things that you were never kind of you didn't have space for Mm -hmm. like that didn't exist I can see how there would be a divide there where it's kind of like it's not that you want to block them from doing those things; it's that you don't even understand what they're asking for. Mm. And I feel like it's it's the same with um for like with neurodivergence, the way that we ex-, ex you know the way we understand um like autism and like ADHD. So, for example, like as a kid, I was never identified as ADHD. But being a girl, there's way less. It was way less identified because it was that idea of like the hyperactive boy disrupting class Uh, that's who got that label so for me i didn't even connect the dots until high school because i didn't even self-suspect but i feel like this generation is so much more there's so much more research that's come out there's so much more um i feel like the human experience is like swimming pool size and then what we knew in the 90s let's say was like a shot glass Mm -hmm. and then now maybe we're up to like a like a teacup right or like do you know what I mean and it seems like not a lot but that's life-changing like that's a life-changing difference if you know something about yourself now that you didn't and I feel like an entire entire generations are coming up Mm. like with this knowledge just embedded so it's like what do you you mean you don't understand what to Mm -hmm. do with about burnout and these things I, I feel like these are things that will if we make the right moves come to the forefront and I think it'll happen partially naturally just as you know younger generations move up
1: what do you think yeah and take leadership positions and so yeah on. exactly um, what do you think about the dichotomy if it exists between corporate interfacing in pop culture and mass dialogue versus the new window that everyone has, especially if they're young and hyper-connected to the world. Like the way I've been thinking about it is this, going back to the beginning of the conversation where we were talking about kind of work-life balance uh, and employee realities if you're in your 20s and you're an employee, you know, first, second, third job, whatever it is, because they happen quick. Um, But let's say that you're Time online is spent on, you know, maybe five or 10 times or 20 times as many sources of information, Mm -hmm. whether they're validated or not, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But people are jumping in and out of content and swimming far and wide in content as well in the sense of uh, topics that, you know, may not be uh, easily accessible to other people because the algorithm didn't even feed that topic to them and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So the kind of like, let's call it digital dexterity of mm-hmm. sourcing information um, and also consuming, like right? And mm-hmm. also consuming information because now as algorithms feed people content and it's less search base um, and the search is even driven by uh, a profile rather than you know, just looking at the index. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like leaders within organizations and organizations as a whole, uh, often cases find themselves at odds with that um, contextual relevance. So dialogue becomes even more important between coworkers of all different hierarchical kind mm-hmm. of stature Yeah, to get on the same page about who you are in order to understand yeah. how you do what you do. Leave aside measuring your performance or figuring Mm -hmm. out what your internal mobility is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But that's a
1: difficult thing because I think (laughs) organizations almost need to almost sponsor it seems like like see I guess where I'm going with this is thinking of an organization as an educator. This came up recently in, in a discussion I had where you know we were talking I forget who it was was talking about If you're in your 20s, you've come out of university, you're a fresh mind Mm -hmm. still, you're young, Mm -hmm. you have less, hopefully, less biases than someone in their 50s. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're also very energetic about your approach to learning. Mm -hmm. So you want to learn and the company becomes the continuity of the, you know, university campus for you. Mm -hmm. I know Google, maybe this is where this came from. Google was having a lot of problems early on with this, where the Googleplex was like a campus and people were smoking weed and riding skateboards. And it was like, yeah, I got a job at Google. It was like, and that's, mm, you know, became mm-hmm. sardonized in, in like Silicon Valley, the show and stuff like that. Right. <laughs> but they, they kind of like evolved a little bit more corporate culture and controls and, and you like don't do illegal shit on campus.
0: <laughs> that's baseline. Right?
1: Yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's kind of it. And then the whole bunch of people were like, you know, on the, on the roof all day long, just smoking <laughs> weed and barbecuing and not doing any work. Um, no, but, but it's interesting because as people come from a university context or otherwise from companies, even startups, like if a startup is your first job and then you go corporate and you're expecting this, you know, give me a lot of information. I want to deal with this and I'll, I'll figure out, I'll help you. And you're like, you know, leadership or management is kind of like, well, you're not in this department. You're not in yeah. this team. Mm-hmm.
0: You're not on my
1: payroll. You know, I don't know who's measuring your performance, but I don't want to be shanked by like helping someone from a different department or whatever it is mm-hmm. in a corporate reality. Um, so I think that could be problematic. But the, the question yeah. for me lies in um, your perception of how companies can encourage education as part of, you know, what they offer their employees, ongoing education.
0: Yeah, that's a good that's a good that's a good question. I think like for. For what I've seen anyway, like we have, a, in my current company, like this is, it was at Rockstar too. We have a lot of access to like tools for, for self-directed learning. So there's that. I think it's tough because I think learners will learn. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. Like I, I see this with candidates too. It's like a whole range of, of, you know, where sometimes people get sort of stuck in Whatever environment they're exposed to. So if they're, you know, whatever they're doing in their current role, it's like if they don't necessarily try new things because they're they're sort of waiting to be sort kind of handed mm-hmm. opportunities. And then there's people that are just so proactive with like staying up on new technologies and and I feel like I feel like it's it's tough because I think the more leaders themselves care about learning and kind of share what they're learning. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the best way to do it because, again, like I think people will find a way to do it again with all the tools that exist, you know, with like Udemy and Coursera. And like there's a ton of information on the Internet, but it's like the impetus to use it. And I think if if I know for me, I'm really inspired by a lot of the leaders that I see, like posting on LinkedIn Mm -hmm. that are, you know, talking about topics that I hadn't considered even for myself. Right. Like neurodiversity and, sure. you know, ways to sort of um, yeah, I think that's,
1: it's. Is this also something that you've seen in, in either your previous work or at, at the company that you're at now, Unity, this idea of kind of a town hall, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where there's time and space set aside for peer to peer learning, not in the sense of like um, paired programming, right? but in the sense of like, what are you into and what are you so excited about? That whole show and tell thing. You know, you got to school mm-hmm. when you were a kid mm-hmm. and you got to like Monday morning. You're like, oh
0: my gosh, oh my God, this happened, this happened. I want to tell yes. everybody about it. <laughs>
1: and it's <laughs> not <laughs> like we went to the farmer's market with my dad on Saturday. It's whatever it is you're <laughs> yeah. jazzed about and you're into it and you want to learn more about it, you know?
0: Yeah. Do you know, I was just thinking about that in the context of Spotify Wrapped. I was
1: like, oh, this interesting. is
0: our show and tell right now.
1: Yeah, I don't get that. I don't get why everyone's so excited about Spotify rap. Do you know why? Maybe why? I just
0: really enjoy it. Why? Tell well, me why. <sighs> Tell me why.
1: There's a few reasons. One of them is mine doesn't have much to say.
0: No. <laughs> I'm left out.
1: No. You know what?
0: Are you sure that's true?
1: It's true. It's I mean, is it just like pathetic. white noise
0: all the time? Yeah, or that's do you all not I listen use, to. Do you use Spotify?
1: I rarely do. So there's not okay. enough data for it to feed off of, okay. to be okay. honest. But I feel like it's, I, I, it's a larger gripe I have with Spotify is that I love Spotify, but I hate Spotify. Um, I like the, you know, flexibility of, from a user standpoint. Like, mm-hmm. it's really easy to use and it works with all my devices and I can share my plan and all that great stuff. And there's an ever-increasing wealth of content on it. But it's – I really don't like it as a replacement for my catalog. I'm you... still stuck in the whole iTunes debate, man. Like, I have a hard drive.
0: Oh, gosh. Gotcha, I have a hard okay.
1: drive on my tunes, you know? Okay. And most of those tunes but, are... Yeah. No, not most of them. Half of them. Half of them, at best, are on Spotify. Right. But, okay. That makes but, sense. Right. But the whole idea of, like, you know, your music on demand, wherever you are, if you're not connected to the internet, at your fingertips, is just so tantalizing to me. Also, look, I'm a DJ, right? <laughs> I mean, so that's part of it, is... <laughs> I like the idea of like being able to remix my own stuff with my own tools.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. I I don't mean
1: just performing, but I mean the idea of like making a playlist, having your content available to you, um, sending someone a file like, like, Hey, check out this tune. And I don't mean send them a link that they then have to log into a proprietary program for (laughs) sign up for an account for to play. And in the process, the, the artist that you've just shared the music of doesn't get any money anyway
0: see to me like the whole management of that system like i love spotify for like the same reason opposite perspective i like not having to manage it anymore that was like i didn't i didn't enjoy that part you know it's just so it's just different perspectives Exit. yeah Yeah. that's totally it i think like the why why wrapped appeals to me so much it's the same as any like type of shit. i just like seeing glimpses into people's Like there's, you can tell so much about somebody by music they listen to, but also like games that they play, Mm -hmm. what they, and I just find it so interesting to get those little glimpses. Mm -hmm. And I think.
1: Is that part of your hiring process too? Like, do you, do you look for, you know, that kind of larger profile of the candidates?
0: I do. I think it's, you know, I think it's interesting. It's, I think there's a huge piece missing if you're not kind of addressing who somebody is and like digging into that when mm. you're talking to them. Cause it would also be so boring for me just personally where it's like, you know, I want to, I, I think we should care about like people as whole people mm-hmm. and I do. But again, that's why I think it's, it's quite case by case, right? It's like, if you have, you know, a, a company where whether or not it's coming from top down, but people are, are making that effort and like kind of, you know, Caring about where people are coming from, then it's it's a better landscape. I see it a lot with peers too, where it's like, and that's why I think it's partially partially generational. But um, mm. you know, I think that that yeah, the with the learning piece, just I think being a leader that 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 continuously learns mm. and I that's think, a big piece actually. I think that breaks that mold of like having to position yourself as an expert mm-hmm. because it's like. There's trust is such an important component of leadership that's, I think, still not quite understood across the board. And a lot of that is just that transparency of like not pretending you know everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's one thing to say, like, well, I don't know everything, but if that's still a line. It's like you're still doing the script of like the manager you can trust as yeah. opposed to, you know, oh, I learned this thing. I learned, you know, and, and actually talking about what you're learning and digging into it.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting, right? Like uh, someone asked me about this the other day. They were like, "How do you stay engaged as a podcast interviewer?" You know? Mm, and for me, I'm mm-hmm. like, I I don't That's really That's a good question. Oh, oh thank you. <laughs> um it, it, well, let's let's see if there's an answer. Yeah, the, yeah, I'd
0: like to I was going to say
1: <laughs> The answer for me is that it's about presence of mind, you know, and and a inquisitive nature, which you hope for from leaders in all organizations yeah. regardless so mm-hmm. it goes back to your point of this like ever learner it's so nourishing to have conversations with people that are um outside of my everyday experience granted my everyday experience is very diverse because we have like 500 people here that i don't <laughs> know every day at start well <laughs> so in a sense the business is a honeypot for me to meet people mm-hmm. and have great dialogue you know but I could see, and this is something we do help commercial clients with, is produce podcasts. And a lot of that is coaching um, leaders to be able to shed the pretense, to be able to open up on camera, on the mic, and just have dialogue. That's not about this hour in my calendar has to provide this function. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about kind of taking pause. And uh, And one of the new things that we're going to be doing through next year is actually meeting or, or facilitating a lot of these leaders uh, using podcasting to uncover stories from within their organizations. So it's like that's really cool. Yeah, and whether it's internal or publicly available, the idea of just you know having that show and tell be a one-on-one that also breaks a hierarchy. I love that. Kind of cool, right? Yeah,
0: that's really cool. That's really cool. We had a fireside chat the other day, internal, nice. and it was yeah, it was like a a, a panel of like of. Um, female leaders like very high up in it but it was a really um like informally led like it was great and it was kind of like let's do like that let's lean into that because I think you know there's a way to do that where I mean there's an element of people still masking when they're doing it I think it takes practice right and it's like
1: but was that purely online
0: yeah. Like, do you mean, like, was there an in-person component? You mean, right. yeah, it was pure, it was completely virtual.
1: Because I find that when there is, and this is also why we have our studio around the corner on Niagara, when there's when the a hybrid, different? yeah, yeah. when it's a hybrid event mm-hmm. and you've got, even if it's 20 people in the audience and they're your peers, yeah. there's that human element that you drop your guard and you just have a conversation a little bit more. But again, it depends yeah. on the moderator and, yeah. dep- and, and when you're moderating on a people in boxes... It's on t- the screen. it's got to be
0: tough. It's, oh, it's got to be so tough, tough. cuz there's no
1: crosstalk also yeah. in most of the stuff but talking on top of each other can actually help flow.
0: Yeah, they, that's the that's a huge struggle with with you know with like virtual communication I find cuz you start talking and it it you know you cut someone off. But it's such an unnatural like you're, you're okay, your turn. You
1: yeah, know? sorry. Sorry. Oh wait. Bizarre. Uh, uh, yeah, are you yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, and for the most part I love I feel like you know, I've loved virtual. At the same time, because again, like people drop that pretense more easily when they're in their own space and they're comfortable. So they're not in the office. They're and they, again, that was something I noticed almost right away. Where it's, it's like, oh, this is a different conversation, and you can see their backgrounds and you can see like things. It's like reminders that we're people,
1: which is kind of it's like part people. of this meta. The meta take home for us is looking like the office wasn't working in terms of cubicle culture mm-hmm. the office needs to be more like a home and when people use it it's not just a home it's an exceptional home for experiences that like are a shared
0: base yeah like a base like a base a meeting place mm-hmm. like I, I heard someone describe it's community center like they love yeah, that that's idea good. that's right good. like a place to build connection right but that that's where it that's its function i think intentionality it's just intentionality is like such a that's super integral to like everything we've talked about, like to just building trust with teams to learning to it's, it's intentionality. It's like deciding to do that thing,
1: mm-hmm. you
0: know, and so, that thing sometimes is just taking off the mask, <laughs> like making a space for people to be themselves. But I think that has to be led by example. Right. Right. So it's like, oh, it's like the early days of like, remember, you know, Bell Let's Talk. Yeah. Where I feel like the early days were. A I don't lot know of what people, that is. I
1: just know the billboards existed.
0: Yeah, like it's so like well, an
1: advertising campaign.
0: They donate money when you call and text that day to mental health organizations. So like that's one their day out of, of
1: 365, day. 365
0: days a year. Yeah, I mean it's a start. Like that's point, I don't know, twenty three percent of their, but, their revenue. <laughs> well, let's not examine it from a yeah yeah yeah, that, yeah. Let's break not down, down the business down that side too far down. <laughs> like <laughs> the point being that I feel like when that started happening, yeah. I noticed on social media a lot of people saying, you know, if you're struggling, like you can reach out to me, you can reach out to me. And I was like, That's but that's not talking. Mm-hmm. That's like an invitation for listening, which is like yeah. good. But it's sort of like if you know somebody's going to relate already to an experience because they sort of disclose their own and said, like, you know, I've had experience with anxiety, I'm struggling with this. I'm if we can do that in real time in a more comfortable way, mm-hmm. leaders immediately are more accessible because they're not you're not seeing them as We see like The this... Wizard of Oz.
1: Yeah. 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 It's kind of like this, like, um, again, it goes back to assumption. There's a lot of assumption around power politic that kind of is supported by everyone hiding behind screens. There's good stuff to it, which is like people are in their own comfortable space. But then there's that like second guessing because communication's not synchronous. Mm hmm. And so we see that synchronicity kind of like changing when people come here to start well and they're doing a team meeting. They might not have – some some teams that meet here have never met before in person, right? Because they're like new hires. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And some
1: of them do know each other and they're coming back and they really love just – it's something that's natural. People come together and especially in a new context being here. And for some uh, returning teams, it's something they look forward to once a month or once a week. So it's like a safe place for them to kind of like just be – yeah, And the guard drops, the guard drops. Sometimes it takes an hour or two hours, but you see it dropping after the first few laughs, couple jokes, everyone's feeling relaxed mm-hmm. and it's a beautiful thing to witness. That's it's, awesome. It's pretty cool. And I think yeah. it's a way of the future.
0: That's really cool. I do too. I do too. Cause it's like, you, you need that spe- again, intentional space to connect, but it's not, it's without that forced sort of, it's, yeah. it's really the best of both, both worlds, I think like if in in you know te- especially in tech where you know there's a lot of it, it creates spaces for people who work best more often isolated like right. if you're de- if you're a developer like and you don't you i focus can completely and, yeah, yeah head down and but you also get that you know interaction piece because you can't replace you can't fully replace that mm-hmm. with technology and it's like you know unless your team's super Disperse, but i feel like a lot of companies are doing good jobs of of making people enabling people to be mobile enough to meet like even if they're flying out yeah totally
1: we're definitely seeing like there was there was a good adoption of this as the new wave working this year in toronto and especially with our customers of course Mm -hmm. um and it looks like next year is going to be the actual awakening post-pandemic hopefully Mm -hmm. you know come spring I'm expecting a lot more of that want to like gather and to learn from each other and to, you know, spend that time socializing, and and companies are warming, which is heartening, especially our customers. They're warming to the idea that socialization or socializing amongst their teams is not at odds with the bottom line you know that's been right. conventional culture yeah. right it's like yeah. manager comes by the mm-hmm. kitchen and is like looking at his watch okay guys coffee so that's time's the over problem
0: with the office that's the thing and it's like okay this is your space to connect and solve problems and like be dynamic and but yeah like intentionality it, trust too right it comes down to trust also where it's like okay like you've hired people for a reason Mm -hmm. (laughs) you don't have to monitor all of their time right 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 right. there's yeah there's i think there's the the sort of like rub that at least i'm noticing is like as we go into 2023 it's like there's a lot that's still there's a lot of old thinking that we still need to get rid of it's like it's it's because i think for a long time it was the the idea that okay going back to the office and it's like nobody's under that pretense anymore but it's like okay what does the new office look like mm-hmm. and it looks like this right like it looks it's dynamic and flexible but that involves a level of trust right and um yeah it's so ah, no does unity
1: have a defined office?
0: Unity has offices all okay. over the place yeah so the Toronto one's like under construction ah, and but when is it a opening? lot of them are established the, uh, t- this summer okay um but yeah like a lot of them are or have been you know there for like quite some time they're cool spaces i've never been to one okay which is like it's it's so weird that that's like, the, yeah that that's a thing but um yeah they there's it, it just depends because it's a big company like there's a lot of um there's been a lot of discussion about you know what to do, really, mm-hmm. and how to handle. So it's it's majority up to teams, like how they do encourage you know teams to get together. Um, but again, like the frequency depends on on what the the function is.
1: It's very a difficult problem to tackle, especially with a large employee yeah. base. Like how many do you know mm-hmm. how many Unity folks are in Toronto?
0: I actually don't. I think it's it's like between one and two hundred. It's okay. not more than two hundred. Okay. I don't think it's less than hundred.
1: Because one of our larger clients. Uh, Shopify
0: mm. has been
1: going through this, right? We were we were kind of helping them out with this in the last couple of years, especially the last year, like 2001 to 2002. Okay. Oh, sorry. What am I saying? 21 to 22.
0: Oh, okay. That's fine. Numbers um, don't register super well with me. So I heard the one. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. <laughs> uh,
1: I still write 1999 in my book every day, you know? <laughs> But, like, the um, what, we, what we saw with them is that, like, they have whatever how many thousands of people all over the place. Mm-hmm. And when they went full remote, you know, they kind of cobbled together um, a rule book almost for how teams can self-organize to find uh, space uh, and then how they facilitate their meetings to try and get some sort of, like, functional output, but also to go and do fun stuff and make sure there was enough budget for it. Mm-hmm. And that's been, like, a kind of a very you know, experimental process in the last year, year and a half. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of getting more from what I understand is getting a little bit more refined next year, Mm -hmm. but it's been a big undertaking for them to like, just culturally align with, you know, everything from procurement to booking billing to then auditing, you know, the success post meeting, if they even do that Mm -hmm. to then pre-planning the next set of interactions with people it requires a whole new business unit, you know, and they've Mm -hmm. built it out to just be an internal team.
0: Yeah. But an internal
1: team supporting, what is it? 40,000 global staff or something. It's crazy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That is quite the undertaking. It's like, Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of like decisions to be made there. And I, but I think like, again, it's one of those things where there's an opportunity to better understand like humans in general, because there's, I've heard a lot of cases for, you know, basically like, supporting the choice. Mm-hmm. Like I think it does come down to, you know, teams and people making decisions about the way that they work. Cause they know there's, there's definitely like for, but again, like neurodivergence, for example, like for people on the spectrum who have like sensory um, sensitivities, mm-hmm. it's like the office can be a real detriment mm-hmm. and then they're spending extra energy, you know, it, it affects their work, it affects their life. And it's like, you know, the ability to kind of select where you put your energy and and but then there's people who are you know really need that human interaction who haven't had it and it's mm-hmm. kind of like how do we balance but i think i think that being open about the fact that you know we're we're all house plants that require certain conditions mm. but we're no two same house plants it's like it's a good some metaphor need more light and right and figuring out what that looks like i think There is a way that we can do that, but it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it gets complex when you're making business decisions, but I think when you're on teams, it's, it's a little bit, it's more simple, but it requires intentionality. Right. So like still complex, but easier because, you know, if you're encouraging people to kind of advocate for themselves and and decide sort of what they need and try things, if Mm -hmm. you're willing to do that, then I think we have a really amazing opportunity to like to get, have better soil. Exactly. For all these plants.
1: Yeah, or build the terrarium. You know, like build, <laughs> yeah. build the terrarium for your own ecosystem. Yeah. that is all encompassing.
0: Right, and you can just kind of move over. <laughs> yeah, totally.
1: Well, Sam, yeah. it was a pleasure chatting today. <laughs> Thanks it was, so Honestly, much. it was such a pleasure. I think we covered a lot of interesting topics, um, and uh, and I'm looking forward to having you back, maybe for the conference in April.
0: Thanks. That'd be great. Yeah. Thank you for thanks for the invitation. It was a pleasure. Thanks for talking. It was it was great talking to you too. Thanks so much. Right on.